Um, well, hello again, and um, it's my joy to welcome you back as we continue in uh, the book of Matthew this morning. As um, Colin relayed last week, we've been in the book of Matthew for some time now, and we're steadily working our way through it, uh, going through the Sermon on the Mount, going through uh, Matthew's uh, descriptions of who Jesus is, and we're now in a section of the text where uh, we're hearing how people are responding uh, to Jesus. So last week um, was, of course, responding to how other contemporary like people like us responded to Jesus at that point in time. Um, and today, uh, we're going to be focusing on, on a different group. But first and foremost, I'm going to read through the scriptures. Uh, so we're in Matthew 12 uh, today, uh, going to go through verses 1 to 21. Uh, the, the text will be on the screen, and if you have your Bibles, I will be reading from the NIV translation, uh, that's, which is up there as well. But uh, let's read through uh, the text this morning. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, haven't you read what David did when his, he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on the Sabbath day, Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent, for the man, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Going on from that place, he went to their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. A large crowd followed him and he healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell others about it, about him. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant who I have chosen, the one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out, till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. Uh, let's pray. Lord Jesus, I um, thank you for the time that we're going to have together today. Lord, I pray as we uh, work through the scriptures today. Lord, you lead us with open hearts and open ears to hear. There's elements of this text that can be quite challenging for us. Uh, and so I pray that you guide um, us through that today. Uh, guide my words and may they bring life and truth. In your name we pray. Amen. So, um, as Colin mentioned last week, you know, focusing on different groups of people uh, and how they're responding to Jesus. And this week, we're looking at the Pharisees. Um, and so just to ju jump through that text again, let me um, kind of talk, let's talk through a little bit about what is, what is happening. Um, so at the beginning of the text, we have um, the picking of the grain. 
where uh, the Pharisees are hitting Jesus and his disciples up about picking the grain, like literally heads of grain as they're walking through the fields, um, saying that you can't do that on the Sabbath by law, any kind of work or any kind of thing like that. Um, and Pharisaical law was outlawed. You weren't supposed to do that. Um, and Jesus responds to this accusation by actually uh, highlighting several situations in Israelite history where this has already occurred, from King David, who would have been a hero to the Israelite people, uh, to uh, priests as well, who had done this, who had actually eaten uh, on the Sabbath day. And then he closes uh, that section, uh, I've highlighted there with um, a quote from Hosea, the prophet Hosea, saying, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, as the root of um, the text, which we're going to get to in a little bit. Um, the, full, the full verse there says, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Um, which, that text originally was a prophetic word from the prophet Hosea about Israel's um, unrepentance. We then move into this next section. It's on the same day. The Pharisees are following Jesus and his, and his disciples uh, to the local synagogue, looking for opportunities to kind of really ping him, arrest him, do whatever they want to. Um, and so uh, when it says they are, that's the Pharisees. So it's still the same group of people uh, looking for a reason to bring charges against him. Um, and so they see a man with a shriveled hand and kind of try and goad Jesus into, make, into breaking the Sabbath law by asking about healing. Um, but then Jesus responds by you know, appealing to do good, that uh, the ultimate point of what we're supposed to be doing today on the Sabbath is still doing good uh, to one another. Uh, and he heals the hand in front of them. And the Pharisees then go away and begin to plot how to kill Jesus. And in this third section here, uh, Jesus withdraws away because he doesn't want to incite uh, violence or anybody else to come to any more harm. Uh, he continues to, to heal um, others, but tells them not to share about it, trying to keep a low profile. Uh, and then uh, Matthew uh, the author of the book closes off, off the section by uh, reminding us of a, of a prophetic text from the prophet Isaiah, um, which, uh, which is um, providing attributes of who Jesus is as how he's fulfilling the role of the Messiah and how that he has come uh, to bring love and to bring justice, to bring hope and to bring healing. And the fact that Matthew is putting that section about who he sees Jesus as within the context of the Sabbath is Matthew in a way saying, hey, the point of this Sabbath thing is about those same attributes about as well, about uh, it being a place of justice and a place of hope. Um, you also have a line in there as well, here is my servant who I have chosen, which is supposed to make you remember uh, the line that God shared immediately after Jesus' baptism as well, which is what is said from the clouds just after Jesus is baptized. So Matthew packs a lot into this little section and um, I wanted to kind of go through that, that part of that relatively quickly because I want to unpack a couple of things more in depth um, because it can be easy to read uh, this section of text. Um, and it's, it's kind of a nice text because it is quite a face value text. You read it like, okay, I see what happened here, that happened, and then this happened, and then that happened. It's kind of, from a face value situation, quite straightforward. Um, you kind of come away being like, well, Jesus is a legend and the Pharisees stink. That would be the TLDR version of the scripture if you just read it as a face value reading of Jesus is the man, Pharisees think. Um, but if we dig in more, uh, 
what is actually happening here with, with, with Matthew and, and Jesus is that they're challenging the Pharisees to go back to the root of their beliefs, that they're missing the point. And um, like last week, what is occurring here is the Pharisees are firstly blind to the Messiah who is directly in front of them, who is fulfilling the things that they've read in their scriptures. And two, the Pharisees are wrapped up in rules. They're missing the heart of why these things exist, or why they have these things in the first part. And it's the second point in particular today that I want to focus on. But to begin, let's do a little bit of a journey through who are the Pharisees. Because it's easy to, like we just witnessed before, paint them with the brush of, they're just the stinko guys who just want to ruin everybody's fun. But actually, their history is quite fascinating. So bear with me. We're going to jump through about 700 years of history within a very short period of time. Are we ready for this? Don't worry, there's pictures. So as, as um, we've talked about in church before, uh, at 587 BC, the Babylonian Empire comes in, conquers the remnant of Israel, up, uproots them, takes them away to Babylon. They're out of Jerusalem, they're in Babylon. Um, a little time later than that, the Persians rise up, the Persian Empire, they come along, they take out the Babylonians, and the Israelites are still there, but they're like, you know what? You guys can head back to Jerusalem and start rebuilding things. So under Persian rule, the uh, Israelites are able to leave what was Babylon, now Persia, head back to Jerusalem and begin to rebuild things. And then what happens is a little time later, as you can see, or a couple hundred years later, they've just kind of established themselves again. Then old the Greeks rock up and they conquer them once more. Uh, they're able to stay in Israel or in, in, in Jerusalem in that area. Um, but the Greeks come, they bring Greek culture, uh, they Hellenize uh, the Jewish people as well. They bring a whole lot of extra stuff in. And what happens is after a while, there's a section of groups underneath the Greek rule who aren't very happy about this. And um, just like Colin shared last week about the zealots, uh, a similar kind of thing occurred. There's this, the Hasmonians rose up from under Greek rule and actually managed to overthrow uh, their Greek rulers and, and managed to gain independence for the Israelite people again and set up uh, their own kind of Jewish kind of empire once again in the vein of what had happened with King David, um, trying to get back to that, trying to get back to their own uh, standing. So what happens though is like they come in and they take power, the Hasmoneans, they set things up again and they're, they're just as bad as what was going on before. So the Hasmoneans... Uh, they're in charge, they're the leadership of the country, uh, they're in control, and they're running things uh, from the Jerusalem temple. Now, the Jerusalem temple for an Israelite is the heart of everything that you do. Your calendar revolves around it, you go there to make your annual sacrifices, it's the heart of your culture. And so the Hasmoneans, they've got control of that, so they're able to dictate to the rest of the Israelites how things are going to go. They get quite corrupt over time and kind of full of their own self-importance. They kind of lose sight of um, the heart of what the Israelites were supposed to be. And then, uh, so you have two other groups of people at this time as well. So you've got uh, the Hasmoneans that we just talked about. You also have a huge number of the Jewish people who now live essentially a greek influence life. They've kind of rejected a bunch of the traditional Israel-Jewish Israel um, cultural kind of identity. They're more living as Greek than as traditional Jew. And then you've got this final group, and the word I don't know how to pronounce quite well, a group called the Hasidim. Now the Hasidim are the guys who are calling 
for religious purity. They're calling everyone to, hey, let's get back on track. Let's get back to the times of Moses. Let's get back to the times of King David, where we had this culture, where we had this religious identity, where we believed these things in a united sense. And so they're calling the rest of the Jewish people to back to the heart, back to God's heart and to the order of how things um, were supposed to be. Unfortunately, Hasmonean rule doesn't go well, and eventually the Romans arrive. Now, the Romans, as we know, are brutal. They absolutely devastate uh, what the Hasmoneans have tried to build over a period of time. They kill a number of key leaders, uh, and they infiltrate. The picture is actually of King Herod there, who he marries an influential uh, Hasmonean daughter of one of the leaders and then kills the rest of their family in order to assume control. It's a very messy business with the Romans. Um, so the Romans are there, and they've just absolutely devastated everything. Uh, less than 100 years of, uh, after Jerusalem was kind of reta- retaken by uh, the Jewish people. Um, at this point, it's at this time that we see um, the Pharisees actually emerge as descendants of um, the Hasidim. So again, you've got three key groups of people all kind of utilizing the Jewish identity trying for their own advantage or for their own way of life. The first group is the Sadducees. They're essentially descendants of the Hasmoneans. They base themselves at the temple. They're in bed with the Romans. They're very corrupt. They do honor the Jewish law, but at the same time, it's all mainly for their own advantage. And they're kind of political, and they play the Romans' favor the entire time. At the other end of the spectrum, you've got the Essenes, who see the corruption, see the pollution, see the dilution of culture, and they go, you know what? Nah. We are out. And so they leave and go into the wilderness, uh, into the desert, and they form these communities out there that are uh, strict uh, around practices of purity, um, ridiculous rules around bathing for some reason. Um, and they base their views uh, directly on the teaching of Moses. They're right down the other end of the spectrum. And so the third group are the Pharisees. They're kind of like in, in between these two spectrums. They remember what God's call on the, Israelites, on the Israelite people was supposed to be like. They know the book of the law. They want a theocracy. They want God to be in charge again. And so everything that the Pharisees begin to do is to try and get them back to that. They're not based at the temple. They're based in the local communities, at the synagogues. They're in amongst the people. They're not a wealthy people. But because they establish themselves as these kind of ambassadors and owners of the law, they find that they have a power attached to that as well. If you're familiar with some of the the elements of of Jewish law, there's lots of punishment associated with breaking the rules. You can be stoned, you can be exiled, you can be excommunicated, all these things. And so because they're ambassadors of the law, as they're upholders of the law, they also gain that power of, you've broken it now, we get to punish you. At the same time, although they wanted a theocracy, they were never going to rebel against Rome to do that. They knew their own limits, and they could see the advantages of having uh, Rome in control while they could not be. And so from what I have read, my summary of the Pharisee would be that actually they were good-intentioned, but misaligned. And as they had gone on, and as they had found power and a certain level of authority, they became wrapped up in that more than the goals of trying to restore 
how God had designed the people to be. They had lost sight of the heart of what matters most, why the rules were created in the first part. And this is why um, Matthew, uh, Jesus and Matthew are highlighting this. Uh, Jesus highlights using those examples of, do you not know that this is this? Is like a critique against the Pharisaical um, identity because they are the ones who are supposed to know. They are the ones who are supposed to be upholders of the law. And Jesus twice in this section says, haven't you read what David did? Or haven't you read in the law? How can you not see what is right before it? You're supposed to be the ones that know this, and yet you're not seeing this. What's gone wrong? And then again, later in the text, like you're the ones that are supposed to know what, is, what the point of the Sabbath is. You're supposed to know that the heart of this is to be doing good. Why are you punishing those who want to do good? Jesus is asking them, Why? Why have you lost sight of what matters most yet? He challenged their authority, their knowledge, whilst also reminding them of the true reason for the Sabbath. He's telling them to remember who they were supposed to be. It can be easy to read um, this passage and think, cool, Jesus is very chill about the Sabbath. I don't have to worry about it or do it. This would, and I would say that that's a poor reading. Rather than uh, deep dive into you know, how in a modern day sense we should practice Sabbath and things like that, I think instead what would be helpful for us this morning is to briefly look at the origins of where the Sabbath came from and why like, its core intentions. And remind ourselves of what it is intended to be like so that we can see what A, the Pharisees missed and also maybe what we miss about it as well. So the first time we read about the Sabbath uh, or the idea of the Sabbath, is when you're reading through uh, the Genesis account um, at the end of the creation narrative, uh, where, where it says, on the seventh day, God rested. Um, now, Jeremiah Unterman, uh, he's a great uh, contemporary um, Old Testament theologian. He writes uh, this, which I think summarizes this really nicely. He says, God's rest at the end of creation, that in the Ten Commandments serves as a model for human behavior, no scholar has succeeded in providing evidence for any weekly or regular day of rest in any other ancient society. The Jewish Bible invented the weekend, which has been adopted in one form or another by the vast majority of the world. This concept of the Sabbath rest had a democratizing influence upon society. All were equal for one full day a week and on certain holidays. And no one could require anybody else to work on that day. Even the king could not ask his lowliest servant to work on that day. The effect of such a, this is a hard word as well, desiderium, ooh, I don't know that's right, on society cannot be minimized. Here the Bible establishes a weekly rest period as the first labor law. Human rights for all members of society along with the limitation of government. So this idea of Sabbath that we first read about the end of Genesis account and then read about quite a bit throughout the rest of the Old Testament text was revolutionary. No other ancient society did anything like this. Most common practice was you would have slaves and slaves did every single thing for you. You persecuted the stranger. You provided privilege to those that were wealthy within your communities. And that's just the way it was. If you were on top, you stayed on top, and you never had to really do anything about anybody that was below you. 
what happened when Sabbath rest was introduced, which began with God resting in creation and then translated to the rest of Israelite culture, it created this weekly uh, way of equalizing everything out. Everybody took a break from what they were doing. Everybody became equal for a day. Everybody shared in the celebrations at the end of that day. We see Sabbath um, repeated throughout the Old Testament, including in the Ten Commandments, which were delivered to the Israelite people just after they had been freed from slavery. So what we're seeing is, is an intentional part of, hey, I'm reminding you again about the importance of Sabbath because you were slaves or you had no freedom, and now you have this opportunity to be, um, give Sabbath rest to those who are slaves within your midst. And so we read uh, in the Ten Commandments when it delivered to is delivered to them. It says, Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath for the Lord uh, your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your ox, nor your donkey, or any of your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns, so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. As we can see, it's more than just the don't do stuff. There's reason behind why God finds this really important. He wants it to be a time of justice, a time of peace for all, a time for equality amongst his people. This, these are the things about Sabbath that, that matter. These are the elements about it that matter. That is a chance to be equal. It's a chance to stand in solidarity, to share in hospitality, to feast at the end of the day together. By nature, it fights against hierarchical power, it's a chance to rest, to be with each other, and to be with our Creator. And the Pharisees missed this. They had built a system where they penalized people for doing anything, rather than seeing the intention of Sabbath. And when Jesus challenged them on their blindness, did they repent? No. They went away and plotted into how to kill him, because he challenged the system because they're originally set in the rules. I have an uncomfortable question for us to ask ourselves this morning. Are we like the Pharisees? Because it can be very easy to read this text and be like, oh yeah, we're on team Jesus in this one. We definitely, yeah, Pharisees. Um, but are we set in our ways about certain things? Have we lost sight of the heart of what matters most. Maybe we too can get too rigid in the way that we do things. Now, I'm, a, I'm an operations person. I, I like that side of things. I like structures. I don't think they are bad. I, just, I think there's a lot about the Hebraic law and about traditions that we hold as Baptist churches, these things that we have. I think they're, in fact, really good. But we can build structures and structure things to our own disadvantage, uh, to the point that we can become slow to react, that we can become 
uh, unable to feel or unable to change. Things uh, that can be said within churches in particular is that we saw this work one way, and so we keep doing it that way. Or a leader liked something a certain way, so that's why we do it. Or this is the way we do services. Anyone who has anything to do with policy knows that policy creation tends to come from an unseen, unforeseen incident occurring. You write the policy, you set the framework, and now that's the way it has been, and now it's locked in. And what happens is over time, your policy book gets bigger and bigger, restricting and disabling a lot of people. Even though they're intended for good, they're intended for the prevention of harm, what they can do a lot of time is hamstring organizations and people. Jesus wants us to access a relationship with him, with God through him. That means we need to be able to provide access ways, not barriers as a church people. We need to be cohesive, but not rigid. Otherwise, as one example, how will we continue to reach uh, the ongoing changing environments around us? A few years ago, I um, was involved um, with a non-for-profit organization, I was the chair of their board, and we had a transition of uh, key leaders occur within the group. And what was happening is very shortly after they had taken leadership, the environment in which we were operating changed significantly. Doors were being closed, things weren't happening as they were, and this young leader was paralyzed because when coming uh, to the board and to his team and asking questions like, what can we do here? The response was, well, we've always done it this way, so that's how we have to do it. And what we saw quickly was a disconnect from the environment they wanted to reach and the way the organization was running. So what we had to do, which was a drastic step, is we had to go away together as, as a board and with the key leadership and actually go all the way back to the founding documents of the charity to understand who are we supposed to be? Why was this started in the first place? And begin to rebuild the way we would operate from that. We re-looked at everything. We went back to the, 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 the trust deed. We looked, we looked at the mission statement and the core values. We reworked all of these things, coming back to the heart of it and actually holding these things up again. Like, is this still who we are? Is this still who we want to be? Or have we lost sight of where we had come from? It was a hard process. It was a good process. And thankfully, we completed it just before a little event that occurred in 2020 that upheaved the environment even more. And this young leader and his organization, because they now had a clear sight of who they were supposed to be and how they could be that, they could pivot quickly with the changing environments. Pivoting from face-to-face, people-based programs to incredible online material that now has grown their reach to hundreds of thousands of young people across the country within a really short period of time. But it only start, that was only possible because they had chosen to go back and ask the why question, to dive deep, to do some unstitching of some things that have been around just because that's all how they had always been. And I think we have the same things occurring within our churches and within our own faith lives that we can become a bit like a Pharisee in it. I know we try our best, and I know uh, this is, I don't want this to be a dig because I'm part of this too, uh, but I think this is an uncomfortable moment for us to become aware of stuff we may be missing, more than just about 
Sabbath days, but in terms of, of a bigger picture thing. I think there are growing consequences that be, can, can begin unknowingly within churches. Things that we set up with an intention of it being a good thing or a thing that we think will solve a bit of a problem, they can actually be caused to become potential barriers, become rigid, form, uh, and they can begin to form when we start talking about things uh, around our cultures. How do we dress when we go on stage? How do we talk when we're with one, each, one another? Oh, that's a, that's a big idea. Let's not rock the boat. Let's just, let's just kind of keep things going as they are for a while. I think they can begin to form when we're talking about our systems, about you know, how we, we separate out the different generations so you know that they can have you know, their own program over here and their own program over here. Let's just let's clean it up. Let's separate it out. Or, oh, you know, we, I think we spend too much on coffee and tea on a Sunday morning, so I think we're going to... We're going to pull that back. We're going to make a change there. Or maybe it's about when we start talking about our places. Do we want that kind of person here? Oh, do we want to use it for that? But what if they break something? There are th these are things that when we say them can be intended for good, but can grow unknowingly to become these barriers. And I think this is an insidious thing, but I think it's something that I have seen affect people firsthand. I am a, I'm a millennial, I'm 34 years old, and I have worked in and around churches for most of my life. And it is in these working in these places, I find myself hearing very similar conversations. The church will ask, where are all the young adults? And then I'll hear from my peers, the church doesn't get me. The church will ask, why aren't they involved? My peers respond, I asked a question and I was told to pray and read my Bible more. I asked a question and I was told that it, that's just what the Bible says. The church says, the next generation is the future of the church. My peers say, I questioned a leader and was told that this is how it has always been. I wanted to do something new and it got shut down because that isn't the way we do things. I want to understand why this is the way it is, but I don't think anybody wants to talk to me about it. The church says, how do we engage more youth, more young adults? My peers say, the church is irrelevant. I'm finding community in other spaces. They judge me more than they accepted me. I look around at my friends, the people I grew up with, the people I came through youth group with, and there's a vacuum. Hardly any of them are involved in any way, are attending in any way, involved in any kind of ministry thing at all. And when you talk to them, a lot of them will list some of these reasons in a similar way as to why they felt they don't longer want to be involved with church. I'm also aware that there is a national shortage of upcoming youth pastors and senior pastors, and that a majority of our Baptist churches are currently being led by people who are about to retire, and there's no succession planning. Even though cohorts of committed and excited young adults graduate from Cary Bible College every single year, where are they? And why is it that the average time that a young adult stays in ministry in New Zealand is somewhere between three to five years. 
I'm here today, I believe, because I was given spaces to wrestle with questions, to dive deeper into faith, to take risks, to make mistakes, to try new things, all while being supported by people of faith who are older than me. It's true, millennials are annoying. We crave proven truth. We uh, crave genuine. We, uh, we like the honest. Uh, we need the supportive. And we are anxious around being accepted. Even scarily, studies are showing that Generation Z, the one coming after us, our young people right now, are on track to being the most educated young people our world has ever seen. They are wanting and yearning to wrestle with why things are the way they are, and they won't just take simple answers. They'll want to really rip into it. Like I said, this is not a dig, because we're all in this. And all of us, I speak for my generation, and you know, I highlight the generation coming, but I know when you guys were growing up, whatever spaces you were finding, you found some of these things too. And so maybe, just maybe this morning, this passage, which can easily be a face value text, is actually a wake-up call for us today. Maybe Jesus is challenging us here today around, what are we missing? What are we set in our ways about? Who are we supposed to be, and are we becoming that? As outlined by Matthew at the end of the text, we are to be ambassadors of love, hope, justice, and healing, just like Jesus was. Are we, but are we well-intentioned? But also, are we, we may be well-intentioned, but are we misaligned? And so today, as we begin to come to the end of our time together, we need to get back to the why. The why this matters. Just like Jesus was challenging the Pharisees around why the true meaning of Sabbath matters, for us today, as we go into what is an exciting upcoming season, we need to be asking these questions of why. It's almost like through this text, Jesus is saying to us this morning, haven't you heard? I desire mercy. I want to do good to others. Don't you know that I am here to bring justice, love, hope, and healing? Why are you caught up in your rules? This matters more. Remember who you are supposed to be. We need to become a people who are unafraid of seeking out the why. To ask it. To learn. To uh, be ready to engage with whatever answer we may have come back to us. Because that's the scary, uncomfortable part when we ask the question why. We need to be ready to learn. We need to be ready to say that we got it wrong. We need to say be okay with maybe not knowing. But to be committed to the journey of understanding what that might be. We need to be ready to repent. If you want a really simple idea of how this could look, imagine talking to a three-year-old. That's where my daughter is at right now. Every conversation with her, oh, we need to go now. Why? This is the reason. Why? Uh, because this is, this is why. But why? But why? But why? But why? But why? I want us to be a people that say, but why, to everything that gets, comes out of here. Not in an annoying sense, but in, in a genuine way of wanting to understand why this matters. Why do we do services in this one way? Why do we play a certain style of music? Why do we have this biscuit out? Why don't we do this? Why aren't we do that? We need to be a why people. 
ready to engage, ready to ask the questions, ready to do maybe some diving into understanding where things come from. I want to finish with a final story, but it's one that isn't actually written yet. It hasn't happened yet. It's about when we move into our new home in June. We move into our new building down in Golden Sands. When we move out to our new home in June, surrounded by this community we are called to serve, when we open the doors, what are we going to be like? Will we remember what matters most? Will we remember the heart of the why that Jesus has called us as a people to be present in his light and golden sand? Or are we going to try and get wrapped up in, oh, we've got to protect this, we've got to make sure that doesn't get broken. Oh, gosh, um, do we want that type of person in here? I can tell you now as the person who is employed to look after operations here, I am actively going to be pushing back and asking a ton of whys about the way we do things as we go into this space. And I invite you into doing that too as well because I don't want us to become precious about this new space to the point that we create barriers for people. This building is not about us. It's for them. And so I want it to be a place absent of as many barriers as possible so that people are able to come. My dream is that this is a special ground of love, of justice, of hope, and healing for all that come. I hope you have that as your heart as well. I'd like to invite the team to come up now. This is a weighty and uneasy, slightly confusing conversation. I'm, I'm aware of that. And there'll be some here today who feel empowered to ask questions, excited by the opportunity of change, of understanding, of difference. But I'm also very aware that there'll be those who feel very uneasy about this. Change is uncomfortable and can feel threatening. But both of those responses are completely okay. I love our community. I love how diverse we are. I know that we all think very differently and do very different things. I love that. And I, but I know at this, at this, that in this common ground that we share as believers of Christ's message who gather here at Golden Sands Baptist,
the conversation we've had today for some is 